You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Then Jesus led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him in the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to the very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Temptation is an instigator. Temptation is an instigator. It can create fights and tension out of nowhere. That's what it does. The fight of temptation goes a little something like this. Inside of you, that small voice says, I want this. The this is not important. Fill the this with anything that's bad for you that you know that you shouldn't want, but you do. Temptation starts off and says this, I want this. I know that I shouldn't. I've been told that I can't have it but I still want it. I don't want to want it. I even try hard not to want it, but I want it. I convince myself that having it is bad for me, but I still want it. I'm tired of fighting against it and getting no relief, so I give in, and I hope the consequences aren't as bad as I thought they would be. They're worse, but I still want it. Have you been there before? Of course. All right, I expect you all to talk back to me. This is good. (laughs) Of course, you've been there before because you're human and you've been here, whether it's eating, sex, substances that you know you shouldn't take, letting your anger flare up in the midst of hard times, cheating on tests or taxes. It's different things, but it's the same cycle over and over and over. And what's most frustrating is that standing up against temptation feels as hard as dodging bullets, but you find out that even when you successfully dodged the bullets of temptation, you haven't really dodged a bullet. You've dodged a boomerang. Because even if you've gotten out of the way, it's going to come back again. And if you had the strength 
to stand up strong before, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that you'll be able to do it again. Temptation is an instigator. It always brings a fight. You love God. You love your marriage. You love your integrity. You love your honor. You're tired of fighting with it, and you struggle and struggle and struggle, and then finally you give in just to find some relief from the struggle and from the fighting, and you don't find any relief. You're left with the guilt, with the shame, and the frustration that comes from you giving in to something that you shouldn't have, and you find out that guilt works for a bit. It keeps you from that same sin, but the shelf life of it is so short. As soon as that guilt leaves, you find yourself right back in to the same thing that you said, I would never do again, but you find yourself doing it again. The problem is when we give in to temptation, the tension that we find is not ease. It's exaggerated because now new temptations are created. Now we have to come up with new lies to take care of the old ones that are outdated. We constantly fight against temptation just feel like you're getting knocked out. Does anybody feel like that? If you do, I've got nothing but good news for you as we come to the scripture and look at somebody who battled temptation face to face and won victoriously. The Bible is written for our instruction. Uh, this passage right here is written specifically for what I just talk through, it's an amazing story, and it starts off with one word, Matthew 4, 1, then. Uh, the, the reason why that word is so important is because one of the most important things that you do when you come into God's word is you have to understand the context, especially when you come into the gospels. See, most of us tend to read the gospels like it's a sitcom, right? You remember like Fresh Prince, Family Matters, it really doesn't matter where you jump in, but you can jump in and catch on, and we read it like this. All right, this week, Jesus didn't have any bread. He fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. Come back next week and see what he does when his friends leave him, and he has to walk across water, right? We kind of read it like it's this story, but I want you to know it's not like that. It is this continuous story. Matthew is trying to get this point across. So what just happened? Before Jesus is led up into the wilderness, what happens? All right. I love superhero movies, and regardless of how old uh, you are in here, there's probably been a Spider-Man 1 that you've seen, right? It's been <laughs> rebooted so many times. Matthew chapter 1 through 4 is like Jesus's origin story. So the purpose of Matthew 1 through 4 is just to show that Jesus has the pedigree, like he's going to be the guy that solves this whole thing. So Matthew's trying to paint this picture of this Jesus that is God's chosen one. He's had a miraculous birth. He's been baptized. He's been declared to be God's son with power. At the end of Matthew 3, he's baptized comes out of the water, a dove descends on him, and this loud voice says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then, 
4.1. Get this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and he was hungry. Imagine that. Uh, <laughs> then the tempter approached him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. What we have here is Jesus, a man, a God-man who has God's stamp of approval on him. And he's led out into the wilderness. And he's fasting for 40 days in part to show both you and I that God's pleasure doesn't always translate into a full stomach. And an empty stomach doesn't mean that God is angry. Jesus is out here, and hear this, he has a legitimate longing for food, basic needs, and he's hungry. He is deficient and really longs for this basic longing. And Satan comes up, and hear this, he tempts him, not with something that doesn't matter, but he looks at his legitimate longing. Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything, but he's very intelligent. He knows your legitimate longings. He knows your Enneagram, right? <laughs> he knows what drives you. And he's going to come for those pressure points. And none of us have a good enough poker face to misdirect him. And what we're going to see is Jesus stand up to temptation. And I want us to look at this story like a magic eye. Uh, you remember those back in the day, right? It was like a, you know, it was like this like row of ducks, and it just looked like a row of ducks. And you put your nose up to it, and you see the same thing, but then you step back more, and it's like, oh, it's not a row of ducks. Now there's this 3D chef that cooks the duck, right? And there's this <laughs> picture within a picture within a picture. There's going to be something very obvious on the forefront, and I just want to work through and get through that. And then what we're going to do and take a step back and see, uh, this story is put here to tell us something that has the power to change us. So let's start and talk through the first most obvious thing, Jesus as our pattern, Jesus as our pattern. Um. This is going to show you and I how it is that we stand up to temptation by breaking down what it is and reminding us of how Jesus overcame this temptation. But it's like, uh, uh, have you ever put together furniture? And the first thing that you do, you know, if you get it from, I, uh, you get it from Ikea, right? And the, there's no words, but there's the two little Swedish men that are yeah, you're putting things there and you, Right? You do what they do, and then you, you kind of get what they got, the bookshelf at the end. At the most obvious level, this is what takes place here. And as we think through these temptations, I just want to show you this. Look, uh, we'll read verse 3, verse 5 through 7, and verse 8 and 9. Verse 3 says this. Look, 
Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, or since you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread, right? We don't just want to look at what he says, but what does he mean by that? Verses 5, then the devil took him to the holy city to stand up on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, since you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Verse 8 and 9, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus' temptations were unique circumstantially. We're probably not going to get these same three in a row. Uh, But they are not unique categorically. Here's what he says the first time. Since you're the son of God, take these breads and turn it into stone. You're hungry. God's love means that you should be free from hunger. So prove that you're really God's son. And he's going to link being God's son, being loved by God with a full stomach. Temptation two, what he's going to say is this, uh, God's love means that your life should be free from hazards or trouble. Since you're God's son, put yourself in harm's way and see if God really comes and gets you. Because if God loved you, there's no way that he would let you get hurt. Temptation three says, hey, if you'll worship me, I'll give you this crown. And you won't even have to go through all that cross stuff. That there's a way to live this world and still get what you want at the end, but it doesn't take all of that hard stuff. And look at how Jesus triumphs. Very basic. Verse 4, he says this, It is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He insists That even if God doesn't take care of me now with bread, God will take care of me. I'll wait. How does he resist the temptation to think that being God's son means that my life is going to be free of trouble? Satan says to test him, and he goes on and says this. It's also written, do not test the Lord your God, what he's basically saying there is um, there was this one episode of different strokes that came on back in the day where uh, this father had adopted these two young boys, and these two young boys were convinced that their dad didn't love them, so they ran away just to see if their dad would come back and get them. Listen, that running away was itself an indictment on the love of the Father. Satan is saying, you can't be sure that God is really going to protect you, so put him to the test. And Jesus takes the scripture again and resists the temptation to test God and brings in God's word. I'll wait. God will help me. Verse 10. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus faces the third temptation of assuming 
that there can be a crown without a, without a cross by saying, no, no, listen, even if you promise me the world, that's not enough to make me turn my back on God. Scripture says, worship and fear God only, therefore I will do that. And I love how it ends. Look here at the end. Verse 11 says this, then, then the devil left him and angels came and began to serve him. Then. Do you know why the then is important? Because it helps you and I see and understand this truth. Listen. Temptation's tension is never eased by giving in, but by holding out. It's never eased when we give in, but it is eased if we'll just hold out and wait. God came through and provided for all of his needs. Two things. The first one is this. Um, if you're in a fight, one of the easiest ways to get knocked out uh, is by being caught up in misdirection. Roy Jones Jr. did this years ago. He gave fighting somebody, and it was just this crazy clip where he's fighting, and he puts out his left arm like this, and the guy looks at his left arm, and he hits him with the right and knocks this guy out. I want you to hear this. As Satan is tempting Jesus, he is attempting this misdirection. Look, if you try to fight temptation in the realm of rules and regulations, you have already lost. You go through all of these temptations, and except for the last one, Satan doesn't tempt Jesus to break any commandments. Do you know what he spends his time on? Relationship. And he doesn't even, he's not even so brash as to spend his time trying to convince Jesus of God's badness. Satan doesn't have to do that. In order to break trust between us and God, he doesn't have to convince us of God's badness. He only has to get you and I to be suspicious of his goodness. There's two ways to tear down a house. A tornado can come, and it's big, and it's loud, and there are sirens, and it can destroy a house from the outside. Those are big temptations for us to break command. Termites can also tear down a house from the inside, and there's no alarm, and it's small, and they eat away. They erode this trust that we have on the inside with God, and before we know it, the house of our faith crumbles. All he says is, you're out here hungry. God can't provide for you. You have to take care of yourself. What else is the temptation to steal other than you not being fully convinced that God's going to provide for our needs? He goes on and says, if God can't even provide for your basic needs now, then what makes you think that in the future, he'll be able to protect you from harm. Let's just put God to the test. And after he erodes away at this trust, then he's going to go to the last one. Worship me. 
Because at the end of the day, and I want you to hear this, that's why having no other gods before God is the first commandment or the rule, because that rule reminds us that all the rest of the rules aren't about keeping the rules for a referee that blows his whistle when people commit an infraction. All the rest of the rules are meant to preserve a relationship. Every temptation was about Jesus using his power and privilege to meet personal, present needs. And I want you to hear this. Jesus isn't saying, no, no, no. What Jesus is saying is, hear this. Not now, not now, not now. This is the same Jesus, hear this, that is going to miraculously feed people bread that comes out of nowhere. This is the same Jesus who is going to miraculously spend his time reversing the hazards in other people's lives. This is the same Jesus who in time is going to rise up and take his place as the king of the universe. But what he's saying is, not now, not now, not now. So even when he says here at the end, go away, Satan, it's the same thing that he says to Peter at the Last Supper when Peter says, Lord, you don't have to go to the cross. And what Jesus says is, no, 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 no. Get behind me, Satan. Get back in your place. You're not leading this thing. God is. Jesus triumphs, I want you to hear this, not by relying on his present power or resolve. He triumphs by using the scriptures and reflecting on God's past faithfulness. And I want you to hear this. Listen. If God cannot change, it's not just that he doesn't change, he can't change. If God can't change, then his past faithfulness is really a future promise. Jesus knows this from God's word and being confident that God will take care of him. It doesn't cause him to doubt God's love. In the wilderness, it causes, it, uh, causes him to double down on God's love and says, even if I don't feel it right now, I know that it's as certain as the sunrise. And the story ends with Jesus getting everything that he needed miraculously. Temptation, fighting, temptation is not about your resolve to say no. It is about patience, your resolve to say, not now. I'm going to wait on the Lord. And I think this is what this story teaches us. We take God at his word. We hold out. We don't give in. So those are the tools that you need. Be patient. Wait on God. Don't give him. Go home and do that, and you'll be just fine. But that presents a problem, doesn't it? If this is your first time in church, you may be like, John, this is great. I have what I need. I didn't know the church was this easy. All right, I'm going to go home and I'm going to be patient. And you're likely going to come back next week 
and you're going to find out, you're going to say, hey, John, what you said was simple. But what I've learned from this past week is that simple doesn't mean easy. You're right. Um, Because there's a problem with us. There's something more fundamentally wrong with humanity than making bad choices. What's wrong with us is that there's something broken on the inside, and it's not just that we make bad choices. It's that we have this inability to consistently make the right ones. Right? We know what we should do. We deposit the right info into here. But then when we go to withdraw the right actions, right, we get the insufficient funds, and we say, what happened? I heard patience, patience, patience. I tried, but I couldn't be patient. That's what makes temptation so hard, what gives it, what brings so much of that tension. Even if you are here and you aren't a follower of Jesus, and you would say, John, I don't think that there's things as moral absolutes. It's fine for you to say that, but you would still experience temptation. There are things that you may look back and say, although there's not things that are right or wrong, there are things that are bad for me that I don't need. There is a relationship that I don't need. There are foods that I don't need. There are things that I don't need. And as bad as you know those things are, you still want them. What is that inside of you that wants the very thing that you know is going to self-sabotage you? Do you know what the Bible calls that? Sin. And it puts us in a place where even if we know the right thing to do to be patient, we still can't seem to fix ourselves. Right? It's like, have you ever watched like a YouTube video on like how to like cook, right? And you're like, all right, I went to the store. I bought the same pans that they have there. I followed the instructions the same way that they told me, but my cake doesn't look like their cake. There's two things that you can say. There's something wrong with these pans. (laughs) Or when your wife comes in and cooks it and her cake looks like their cake, then you sit back and say, oh, wait a minute. Maybe there's something wrong with the pan holder. (laughs) Listen, the Bible is more like a window than it is a mirror. The purpose of a mirror is for you to look at it, see yourself, see what needs to be done, and you fix yourself. The purpose of a window is to look through it to see something better. If the Bible is just a mirror and it's mainly just about you and what you need to do, it is a discouraging book because it's going to tell you, be patient and you'll overcome temptation and you'll say that's simple and you'll come back and say, John, that's simple, but it wasn't easy. But here's the beauty. We're going to take one step back and we're going to say, all right. Wait a minute, there was an obvious lesson that I gained here about patience, but I think there's something else that this story is trying to get at. Jesus is not just our pattern. 
Jesus is our Savior that stands in our place. About three years ago, this movie, Get Out, uh, came out, and on the surface, it looked like a comedy, scary, like, film about one guy's interactions. Uh, But then, after it came out, you step back and you started to read all the reviews, and what you find out was that the author puts you into, like, no, 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 there are things that took place here in this movie to help you see this was meant to tell a larger story of a greater people, and you're only going to know that if you know the context of what's going on socio-politically in the world, then you can see what goes on there. All right. You will not understand this story unless you get the context. So I'm going to try not to bore you, but I do want you to see this really quick. We're going to go back through verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted, look, 40 days and nights. Why does it go to great lengths to tell us that he fasted 40 days and nights? Why not just say that he fasted? Well, it's really not going to make sense to you unless you get the context of the rest of this book. Thousands of years ago, God had a nation, Israel, his chosen people, a nation that he called his son, that in the same way God looked down and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, God saw this nation of Israel and said to Pharaoh, let my son go because I really love them. God leads them out into the wilderness and in the wilderness for 40 years, they have to depend on God for bread. This is more than just a story about how Jesus overcame temptation. So you do what he did. Jesus is going to conquer temptation as a representative on behalf of all of us. So what this does is as we read this, this text gives us more than just something to apply. It gives us someone to adore. All right. Jesus is going to use scripture, and I'm sure we've all heard, Jesus overcame this temptation by scripture, and that's true. But do you know what else you find out about the context? Out of the 929 chapters in the Old Testament, all of Jesus' scriptures came from two of those chapters, Deuteronomy 6 and 8. Yeah, let me put it this way. Out of the almost 800,000 words in the Old Testament, Jesus uses 33 that are in this small section. Do you know why that's important? Deuteronomy 6 through 8 is all about Israel's failure in their temptation in the wilderness. So as Jesus stands up here, hear this, Matthew is trying to paint this picture. No, 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 listen. Everybody else that has stood face to face with Satan has failed. Adam found himself in a garden with plenty of other food options, not hungry. And he couldn't obey God. The children of Israel found themselves in what most 
scholars believe there's two and a half million people who have already seen God miraculously provide for them. And when it comes to the temptation of we don't have any bread, does God love us? Out of those two and a half million people, like, there wasn't a group that stood up and said, y'all are tripping. Yo, do y'all remember, like, the sea and the, like, plagues and the frogs, and they had frogs, and we, they, they had every advantage, but they didn't. Here we see Jesus in the wilderness by himself, hungry, withstand Satan. And here's how he does it. I just want to break this down really quick. Jesus is more than our guide. Jesus is our God and our Savior. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 6, the first scripture that Christ quotes, says this, uh, 8, verse 3, he humbled you by letting you grow hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat, which your fathers had not known. Why? So that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What Jesus was saying as he faced this temptation is that God has a purpose for hunger. We would like to avoid it completely, but Jesus is saying God has a purpose for it. I know what I know about all of us in here is that all of us in here have legitimate longings that are going unmet right now. And we often take that and Satan will use that and say, God doesn't love you because if he did, he would fulfill it. And what Jesus is saying is, no, 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 listen. God has a purpose for hunger. God has a purpose for an empty stomach. Whether that empty stomach is a lack of food, whether that empty stomach is a wife that wants to get pregnant and have a, have a very good thing but can't, God has a purpose for That in the absence of something that we think that we need to survive, we are reminded, hear this, that peace never comes by the absence of pain, but peace always comes by the presence of God. In fullness, God displays his glory, but he does the same thing in hunger. God has a purpose for hazards. We look at the life of Christ and the people that put him on the cross echoed those same words hear this, they said, hey, if you're the son of God, take yourself down off of that cross. 
And Jesus could have displayed his power and taken himself off of the cross and avoided hazards. But if he would have done that and saved himself, he never would have saved us, those of us who don't stand up strong against temptation. God has a purpose of putting the cross before the crown. Satan's temptation was essentially telling Jesus, there's a more convenient way to get glory. He told Jesus, serving God is too costly. It will cost you your life, period. And Jesus says, let's erase the period and let's put a comma. Serving God is costly. I want you to know this. It will cost you your entire life. Comma. But it's worth it. Jesus could have given in to temptation and been the king of earth. The problem is when you give in to temptation, you never really get what you want. You give up more than you get. By Jesus accepting the cross before the crown, we read the end of the gospel of Matthew and all authority, not just on earth, but all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus doesn't settle. He becomes the king of the world, and it's proof that God's love doesn't always come in the form of full stomachs, but it always does come in the form of full hearts. I want you to hear this. Jesus' sonship, God's approval of him, didn't come by the avoidance of trouble. Didn't come by him being exempt from temptation. God's approval was shown in the way that he overcame it. And the way that he was cared for after he was done. Matthew chapter 4 is put here in your Bible to show um, Jesus beat the final boss before the game began. I grew up on video games, and you go through all this heartache, and then you get to the like last boss, and it's built up, and you've really got to work hard to beat him. The, the gospel of Matthew starts off, and Jesus beats the last boss on the front end, so that you aren't sitting on the edge of your seat as you read this thing, wondering how it's going to play out. That you and I know and are reminded that God wins. He always wins. And Jesus, being the representative not just for Israel but for mankind, has won on our behalf. So regardless of our performance and track record in the coming week as it comes to temptation, you and I can look back, especially when we don't apply the patience that would free us from this, we can look back and say, God, but I'm so grateful that your son did it for me. And do you know what it does to those of us that find ourselves undergoing temptation? Do you know what it does to those of us that find ourselves losing when we face temptation? It keeps us from pretending that things are all good. And it gives us the freedom 
to acknowledge that though I did bad, my destiny is not determined by my actions, but his. Richard Sibbs would put it like this. Um, if God won't be merciful to our infirmities, he won't have a people to worship him. We are weak, but we are his. Jesus is our pattern. He shows us patience. Jesus stands in our place. He does what we couldn't do. And then Jesus fills us with his spirit and gives us the power to do what we thought we could never do. Hebrews chapter 4, starting at verse 14, says this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, hear this, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and grace, or, and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus comes as a man, and he resists temptation as a hungry, tired human. Hear this. Not to show you and I what it means to be God, but to show you and I what it means to be human. With the resources now that we have at our disposal, the Spirit of God inside of us, Jesus withstood every temptation and what he does for all of us that come along and we fail and we confess them. What he doesn't do is he doesn't beat us up with guilt or condemnation. He builds us up that as we come to the throne of grace and confess, Jesus is there to meet us with both grace and mercy. And he says to you, I get it. I know how hard it was. I know it feels like it's impossible, but it's not. And there is glory on the other side. Y'all, I just want you to hear this. Temptation, the tension is never eased by giving in, but by holding out. You have a Savior that has done more than showed you the way. He's paved the path for you and is offered to put you on his back. I'm closing with this. Here's, here's the freedom that it gives to those of us that are family. We often talk about confession in terms in, or, or in the realm of sin that we should confess our sin to one another and I believe that we absolutely should but to the person that really understands the grace that's found in Christ uh, we take it a step further and find that the person that confesses their temptations uh, is less likely to have their lives ravaged by sin. You and I have the freedom not just to confess our sins to one another, but to confess our very temptations, knowing that being tempted doesn't disqualify us from God's grace. It inclines us to it. 
We can confess our temptations knowing that being tempted is not just something that we have in common, but something that our Savior has in common. And we can confess our temptations because we know that regardless of how strong they feel, regardless of the guilt and the sin that they may lead us into, temptations do not have the final word when they find themselves in a conversation with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus has been victorious, and since Jesus is God, his past faithfulness is really a future promise. One day he will lead you to stand in front of God, holy, blameless, without fault. And until that day, we put our hope in him. We know God's love doesn't mean full stomachs, but it always means full hearts. Let's pray. Our Father, our